this do too. How many of you would, you would have a great marriage if it wasn't for your spouse? <laughs> Excellent. No one raised their hands. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> marriage would be great if it weren't for the other person. Um, but, uh, but seriously, that's part of the challenge I want to talk with you about. Just so that you have a little insight into my own relationship with my wife, Stacy. Uh, one day I was driving down the road coming home from a day's work in Chicago, and, and I was looking forward to seeing her, and all of a sudden my cell phone rang. We have those cell phones where you can see who's calling you, and I saw it was her. So I, I was all by myself in the car, and I just thought, well, I'll just, I'll just be a husband to her. I picked up the phone, and I said, sexy stud hotline. To which my wife said, I'm sorry, I have the wrong phone number. <laughs> so that gives you a little insight into my journey with her. And, uh, but I, I think uh, I thought that was kind of funny myself. But uh, I, I enjoy, I enjoy the, uh, not only the fun parts of marriage, but, but the challenging parts too. Because marriage comes with both, doesn't it? Comes with those moments of like, this is a great, I am so thrilled to be with this person for the rest of my life on this planet. And it also comes with those things like, who is this person and why did I marry Satan? We, you know, we have both of those, right? Uh, and sometimes we're the Satan in the whole process of the whole deal. So uh, I understand that. It reminds me of the story of, uh, of a, a gal named Lady Astor uh, in England speaking to Winston Churchill. She, they were kind of at odds and she said, if you were my husband, I'd poison your coffee, to which Churchill said, my dear, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> now, all that stuff's funny when you're not married to the person, but you bring that kind of sarcasm into a marriage, and you're going to hurt it. And sometimes I find a lot of sarcasm, to be honest with you, when it comes to the idea of romance and intimacy in a marriage. I know, uh, I know for me, my whole journey has been, I did not grow up in a, a good marriage. I, a good Christian home where I saw a great marriage. Uh, I didn't really see a great marriage until uh, I started rubbing shoulders with real men in a church. When I say real men, there's boys who are, there's boys who can shave, and then there's real men, guys who love Jesus, are faithful to their spouse, serve their wives, that kind of man. I remember I was, uh, I was at uh, our church as a youth pastor. I was brand new. I was a single guy. I was smart enough to know that, wow, I better pull in some married couples to help me work with some of these students because there's a lot of girls that need to be ministered to. It's going to be tough for me as a single guy. So I recruited a couple that I, uh, I thought would be great working in our youth ministry, and I thought, well, that way I can work with the guy. She can tag along, and it'll be great, right? And I remember they said to me, you know, Bill, we would love to work with you. They said, we will pray about working with you in the youth ministry, but we would love to work with you if, uh, if, if you'll disciple us. And I'm 22 years old, and they're probably 32 and got a couple of kids. And I thought, what in the world am I going to do with a couple about 10 years older than me? I don't know. So I thought, okay, fine, I'll disciple you. I'll teach the Bible. I'll teach, you to, I'll teach you to pray. I'll teach you to some real basic things about walking with Jesus. And that's what they wanted. They said, but here's how we're going to do it. We're not going to have more meetings. We're just going to absorb you into our family life. So in other words, just come over for supper. As a single guy, that sounded pretty good. So I thought, I'll get some real good home-cooked meals out of this mess, and we'll be able to enjoy some suppers, right? And so I started eating over. I remember the first time I ate over their, over their, over their house. You know, we sat down, this beautiful lasagna meal, this whole thing, two little kids around me. I really felt like, wow, I was a part of a family, although, you know, the kids to this day call me Uncle Bill, and that's the truth. Uh, and so, so I really kind of bonded with that family, but I want to tell you how I got discipled. They, I was there to disciple them, but I got discipled on what a man does. 22 years old, first time after dinner, I saw this guy stand up from the table, 
after dinner, kiss his wife on the cheek, tell, him, tell her thank you for the delicious meal, walked over without being asked to to the sink and began to wash dishes. And I said, well, I hadn't seen too much of that go on before. Next thing you know, a towel hit me in the face, and the man said, you're going to eat here, you're going to do work, get up and help me. And that's how I began to get discipled on what it means to be a real man. But sometimes God puts us in a marriage like, like that, not only to teach us, but we get, this, we get this friction in our marriage because God's trying to develop us. <laughs> I'm going to paraphrase now uh, Martin Luther. He's that guy that started this little thing known as the Protestant Reformation. And, uh, and uh, we're here today because of that whole Protestant Reformation thing where he broke away from the Catholic Church and started the Protestant movement, right, where we, we protested against some of the injustices in the church. Martin Luther, of course, he was a priest, and for years he worked in the Catholic system as a priest, which they, didn't, they never married. When he broke away from the Catholic system, Martin Luther also found some nuns who were going to break away from the Catholic system, and he had a, he had a handful of nuns who were going to get married to previous priests. Some people, the more, the more cynical people in this culture in his time thought he was doing it just to spite the Pope. Here's a bunch of ex-nuns marrying a bunch of ex-priests. He got rid of them all except this one older codger type lady, and he realized no one would have her, so he married her. Martin Luther is supported, supposedly has said after eight years of marriage, this, eight years of marriage have taught me what 30 years in a monastery never could. When you get married, you enter into a school of training and what we would call development and progressive sanctification because you will be stressed. You will have challenges. And part of that stress comes to be in the romance and in the intimacy area. Guys, listen to me. The biggest mistake I see men make in the area of romance and intimacy in a marriage is this, before marriage, man, we are pursue, pursue, pursue. How you doing, baby? Texting, da-da-da-da, calling, emailing. We are all over. I'll open the door for you right now. Come on in, right? We pursue, we pursue, we pursue. We get this ring on our finger. We landed the gal, and what do we do? We sit back and we watch TV and we let ourselves go to waste. I'm telling you guys, we have to pursue that, that's one of the things that kills romance in our relationships. And so I want you to think with me for a moment because I'm a romantic at heart. Fifteen years into our marriage, we were having one of those cycles. You go through cycles, right? You're, just like your relationship with God. Don't act like you don't, all right? Sometimes you're glad you're married. Sometimes you're not. You're going around the loop, right? Sometimes you're walking close with Jesus. Sometimes you're not. Come on, people. That's just where we live, right? So I was in one of those spells where I was like, things aren't going too well with pudding, right? It's just not, it's not, it's not a good, it's just not hitting on all cylinders here, you know? You may not have the gift of discernment like I do, but when I come home and the pillow's on the couch, I pick up right away. Something's not good. I just have that gift. I can pick up right away. Something's wrong. And so, uh, so I realized when we're, we're kind of on a downswing here, and we still have those ups and downs. But you know what I would do in my past? In my past, I would look to books. And there's a lot of good Christian books out there, and I enjoy reading those Christian books on marriage. I thank God for them. But about 15 years in, I, asked, I was asking God, God, what can I do to kind of pick my marriage back up? What is it, where, have I, where have I fallen down? What do I need to do to breathe life and encouragement into my wife like a real man would? 
And God said, the Bible. <laughs> you know, God's that way, isn't he? Uh, he'll just point you right away to the Bible. But I'm like, you know what? Oh, God, I was, and this is what I thought. I thought, you know, I'm a Bible college graduate. I'm a preacher. And so I started thinking, what, where does it say in the Bible? So I ran, you know, Ephesians chapter 5 talks about husbands and wives. And, you know, in Genesis it talks about it. I understand you've been getting a good sermon series here for the last few weeks. So you're getting some ideas. But God's, God spoke to my heart and said, you need to read the Song of Solomon. And I said, I don't know what's going on in the Song of Solomon. How many of you have read Song of Solomon? How many of you understood what was going on? All right. Song, <laughs> didn't see very many hands. All right. Song of Solomon is, is one of those books that I think God, it's, it's a, it's a, people misunderstand it. They think it's a book about sex. It really is a book about marriage. There's a difference. If it was only a book about sexual intimacy, then it wouldn't even be couched in the, in the terms of, of marriage. But this book is about a man and woman who fall in love and then they begin to court, and then they get married, and then they have a honeymoon, and then they live, they begin to do, the rest of the, half of the book is the rest of the work of hard work of marriage. And it's couched in poetic terms so that, and especially the parts where the sexual intimacy is in that book, it's couched in such poetic terms that a child or a teenager can pick up the book, read the Song of Solomon, and not be offended because it's beautifully poetic, yet it's very direct when you understand the poetry. My main goal today, listen, I, I preach across this country. My main goal today is not to overestimate what can be done in one sermon. I don't think a sermon's going to solve our marital ills. I don't think a sermon is going to, you know, I don't think you come to church on your way to divorce court and you leave Woohoo! Well, that one, that one sermon, rock and roll, man. That fixed all of my ails, right? It doesn't work that way. But I'll tell you what. Today, my main goal isn't necessarily to do that. Today, my main goal is to challenge you to fall in love with the book of Song of Solomon. <laughs> Every man, how many of you love poetry? Yeah, a few of you. Most men aren't like, man, I just found this new book of poetry, and it is so good. And that's part of the problem. Let me read for you a little bit of why we, don't, uh, we as men don't like the Song of Solomon. Would you be so kind to put up our picture here? I want you to take a good look at this picture, if you would. And I would like to read from you. This, is a, this would be an artist uh, interpretation of, of, uh, of what Song of Solomon is about. Can we get that picture going? Good. See it? All right. Let me read it for you. These are, these are, these are excerpts from the Song of Solomon. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Now watch what he says. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. See the eyes like doves? All right. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes, lambs. Your lips are like scarlet threads. Your temples are like slices of pomegranates. See the pomegranates? Your neck is like the Tower of David. Oh, that's beautiful. Don't try that one at home. With, <laughs> built with rose. You're going to have to turn the lights on for me, friend. I cannot see this passage. <laughs> Thank you so much. Sorry, I didn't bring my glasses. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones on which are hung thousands of shields. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of gazelles, which are, are um, I can't read that, which feed among the lilies. Thank you. Your lips, my bride, are honey, and honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like that of the fragrance of Lebanon. Your navel is a rounded goblet, your belly is like a heap of wheat. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. 
which faces toward Damascus. You know, next time you want to go on a date with your spouse, try that last one. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. I wouldn't suggest it, right? And this is exactly, leave that up there. That's too good to not uh, just take down. Leave that up there. That's one of the reasons we don't get this whole thing of intimacy because Solomon says the most beautiful things, but you have to understand a little bit about the poetry. And I just, before, I, before we dig in, I just want to point something out to you. Historically, the church has dealt with Song of Solomon hysterically. <laughs> historically, the church has dealt with the book of Song of Solomon hysterically. And what I mean is we're so uncomfortable with the way God paints marriage in Song of Solomon that we make up strange things about the Song of Solomon. There's only more strange interpretations about the book of Revelations than there is Song of Solomon. We don't know what to do with the poetry. We're very uncomfortable with how God is so direct and yet so poetic. I want you to look at your handout for a moment. I gave you a handout. And you will see what I believe is the outline. This is an outline I've studied. It says Song of Solomon, uh, the study guide, right? There's an outline there. And uh, you'll see that there's an, in chapter 1, there's an initial chemistry between these two people. And they, begin, and they begin this journey. They begin to walk together. And they do this courtship phase, or we would call that dating. They have this dating phase. And then they decide they're going to get married. So they get married. And then after the, every, every wedding comes a honeymoon. And they go on this honeymoon. And I'm telling you, chapter 4, if you understand what it's saying, it'll burn your eyebrows off. I mean, it's, the, it's that direct, all right? But guess what happens after chapter 4? How many people have been married at least five years or more? Raise your hand. Five. All right, what comes after every honeymoon? A marriage. <laughs> wow. You thought the honeymoon was, you thought the honeymoon and marriage were tough. I'm telling you, man, you should try the, the marriage, right? You have to work hard. This is why I think half of the book is dedicated to the hard work of marriage. And the hard work of marriage, in my opinion, starts when we do the hard work of staying in love. Now, I'm a romantic. This is what culture tells us, right? Two people get married. Two people start to date. They get married. They go on a honeymoon. And then they say, from that moment on, you can kind of expect that by the time you die, you'll be sad that you got married. And we see this all the time. Oh, this gets me so upset. I work with the next generation a lot. And a lot of these guys are single when I work with them. And then they find a wife, and they'll actually bring their wife over to Stacy and I, and, and then we'll go through Song of Solomon. We'll do premarital coaching through Song of Solomon. And here's the first thing I say to the guy, man to man. I go, man, you are going to love marriage. And he goes like, where's the punchline? And I go, no, there is no punchline. I'm dead serious. You are going to love marriage. Do you know why? Because he's been listening to boys. Boys say, oh, you're hand-pecked. Yeah, but you know what? I chose the hand that's pecking me, and I like it. So you got all these boys giving boy advice, right? To the, and the girls, man, girls, women do the exact same thing. They reinforce all this negative negativity, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that coming up. But it's this idea that once you get married, you're never really going to be, you're never really going to be that romantically in love or, or sexually intimate like you should be. And, and if you're, you're lucky if you even make it through life. Friends, I believe God paints a picture for us in the Song of Solomon of, the, of a great marriage. Not a perfect marriage because nobody has such a thing but of a great marriage. And you know what I see? I see them get married. I see them about midlife is where I'm going to pick this up, about midlife where they have a lot of issues. They begin to argue. They begin to fight with each other. They begin to have conflict in the marriage. Every marriage has conflict, friends. And they begin to have that conflict. And I want to show you today how they fight through that conflict and restore the romance and the intimacy. 
This is important stuff. Who would have ever thought God would have thought of this stuff? You act like we'd never even heard it by the way we live, but it's all right here. But you know what? I believe Song of Solomon ends in chapter 8. Listen to me now. In chapter 8, and in chapter 8, I believe they're grandma-grandpa types looking back. So it starts when they were, they were young hotties, and it ends when they're old hotties. Because that's how it ends. It ends when they are still very much in love with each other. Now, friends, my desire, if my theology is correct here, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to heaven. My wife accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior, and she's going to heaven. We're going to be together for eternity. But according to Jesus, he said, in heaven, there is neither marriage nor given in marriage. So there's not this institution of marriage. It seems to be from the words of Jesus, which makes me sad because I'm happy, happy to be married to my wife. But you know what that does? That means the only place I'm going to be able to enjoy this special relationship called marriage is on this planet. And so I don't want to be 75 years old going, well, we made it. We hate each other, but we made it. That's not my idea. I don't think that's God's idea. It's God's idea that as you grow older, your grandkids go, I don't know if I want to go see grandma and grandpa because they're always kissing each other. It just grosses me out. That, my friends, is God's design for marriage. Not that you grow old and stale, but your marriage grows more and more meaningful. Let's be honest. 22 years ago, I stood before God and people, and I said before God and before people that I would love my wife. And I really did love her 22 years ago. But somehow, 22 years later, six kids later, when I say I love her, it means something a little different, doesn't it? It's a little deeper because you've been through a little bit of stuff. I can't imagine what it's going to be like to be 50 years in, 60 years in, and not just survive it, but to have a great marriage. Friends, don't you want, don't you want that kind of marriage? Don't you want the kind of marriage that goes the distance and not just goes the distance, but you have a ball the whole time? You're, still, you're more in love now than when you were 22 years ago when you got married. That's the kind of marriage God wants us to have. Notice I'm not saying marriage makes you happy. You've been married. You know that. You have kids. You know, you know that. You don't have kids for what they can do for you. You get married. It's not about what that person can do for you. You become a servant in that. So what I want to do is I want to look at Song of Solomon chapter 5. Open your Bibles. You're going to probably need to look this up. I don't think your Bible's going to fall open to the book of Song of Solomon. It's just a guess. So find it because I want you to see it's in here. It's God's picture of a great marriage. This is probably midlife. They've been married for some years now. And the beloved, you've got three players in the book of Song of Solomon. You got the beloved, the woman. You got the lover. I love that because he's pursuing. He's the lover, the man. And you know who else is in here? They're friends. The, listen, marriage is never to be done alone. Yeah, it's very personal and private in the sense that I marry my wife, she married me, but we're a part of a community of people who are trying to follow Jesus Christ and trying to encourage each other's marriages. Watch what the woman says in verse 2 of chapter 5. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. And here's what he says. Open the door to me, my sister. Don't be grossed out by that. You know what? This is a Hebrew thing. When you, they call each other, he calls her sister a lot because in Jewish culture, they actually, it was, not, it was not allowed, to this day it's still not allowed, to really express 
open love and physical expressions of love to your husband or wife in public. But you know who you could? You could hold hands with your brother or sister. And so they lovingly refer to each other as brother and sister because they would love to be affectionate with each other in public, but they can't because of the culture. He says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. Open, this is what he says. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with the dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Now, some are saying, well, what's he doing out of the bed? Friends, King Solomon had a, had a palace, right? He had this beautiful mansion kind of a place that kings lived. And when he would go visit his wife at night, he would leave his chambers and go to her chambers. And I want you to imagine with me this great big kind of a double door with a lattice, right? It was, it, the lattice is there for privacy. It's not there for security. In other words, somebody who wants in can get in. He comes to visit her late at night, and he's wanting to enjoy his relationship with his wife. Watch what she says. He says, honey, honey, I'd like to come and see you now. Watch what she says in verse 3. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them together? Translation, not tonight, honey. I have a headache. Right? Because think about this with me for a moment. She's giving excuses why she doesn't want to let him in. We, you, that's called married life, people. That's as real as it gets. And it's not because your wife doesn't love you. You know what it is? It's because she's tired. She wants sleep. At least that's what my wife told me. And, um, and, I, and I think she is a tired woman raising all seven of us. Uh, it's true, right? But this is where the conflict begins, isn't it? She says, I, no, I don't want to get out of bed. Now, think with me for a moment. What man, there's not a red-blooded man in here who, if his wife said, not tonight, honey, because I've taken off my robe, I don't want to put it on again. And a man would say, you won't need it. You won't be needing that. So well, what about my feet? You know, my feet are all dirty. Who's looking at your feet? We're not even going to go there, right? This is not even logical for a man. He has come for a visit. So what's the problem? The problem in the story is, this is where it all starts, the problem in the story is, and the problem in our marriages, is when we have an I problem. I want you to take your pen, and I want you to circle the personal pronoun I. Look at verse 3. Circle it. I have taken off my robe. I Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? It becomes, the problem in marriage, the thing that steals romance, according to the Song of Solomon, is selfishness. Now, guys, I know what you're thinking if you're tracking with me. If you're not tracking with me, I don't know what you're thinking. But if you're tracking with me, you're thinking, yeah, it's the woman's fault. See, the woman is selfish. Let me tell you, what. as we studied this together, my wife and I, what she quickly pointed out to me when we were studying. What time does this man come to visit her? What time? Well, look what he says in verse 2. Open up to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew. And my hair with the dampness of the night. What time is that? It's wee hours of the morning. So lover boy gets a brilliant idea at two in the morning. He says, I'm going to go visit my wife. My wife. I want something from my wife. And he begins to pursue her. And she's like, I don't want to get out of bed. Go away. Who's selfish? Both the man and the woman. I want you to do me a favor. Raise your right hand. Raise your right hand. Let's have a moment of confession. I am a selfish marriage partner. Say that with me. I am a selfish marriage. 
Some of you didn't say it. We know who you are. <laughs> there is a selfishness that happens, right? You know what? I'll be honest with you. I think I married the most unselfish woman in the world. I've never seen a more giving woman. I've never seen a more person who is not about her, but she's about me and my kids and, I mean, the whole nine yards. All it has, all it has done, to, it serves in my, my life to remind me how selfish I really am. So here's a guy who wants to come and visit his wife for a conjugal visit. And, uh, and she says, I don't want to get out of bed. What's this man do? Well, honey, I'm the man. You submit. Well, that guy's an idiot who says that. That guy's an idiot. Because the moment you have to tell your wife to submit, you're not leading. And so I want to tell you something, guys. You better think twice. If you think that's going to conjure up all kinds of romantic feelings for your woman, forcing her into something you, you think she ought to do or has a biblical responsibility to do, and you can quote Scripture in chapter, but you know what? You may win the battle, but you're losing the war. If I understand marriage, if I understand parenting, it's about winning hearts. God's going to have to be involved in that battle. So I want to challenge you. So what? It's right. Somebody might be saying, well, Bill, what are you saying? So, so a woman can just shut the guy down? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Hold Song of Solomon here for a moment. Hold Song of Solomon right where you're at. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. These are the kinds of questions the church at Corinth was asking Paul. You'd never know it because we hardly ever tell you. Just like we hardly ever do the Song of Solomon. We claim to preach the whole counsel of God, but we never talk about the things that the culture is wondering about. Look what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. He's writing about, you know, they said, well, listen, talk to us about sexual intimacy in marriage. Paul says, okay, verse 3. The husband, 7, 3, 1 Corinthians 7, 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. That's a kind way. That's a PG-13 way of saying sexual intimacy. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Verse 4. Just in case you're not getting the message here. Watch how selfless marriage has to be. The wife's body does not belong to her. See, every man wants to go, your bo- hey, your body's not yours, mine. But to the husband, and, she, and that would be right. But here's the problem. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him, but also to the wife. What's the point? You have to be selfless. You have to be selfless. When you get married, you no longer have say-so over you. If you wanted that, don't get married. You can do whatever you want if you're not married. The moment you get married, you lose your rights. you got to be selfless, not selfish. Now watch. Do not, verse 5, do not deprive each other. Underline that. That's the command from Paul. Do not deprive each other. We're talking about bodies. Do not deprive each other. I get the idea from the Bible that regular intimacy between a husband and a wife is to be Regular. I didn't say every day, guys. I said regular. And look what it says. Except for this reason. When you mutually agree, three things, that you're going to devote yourselves to prayer. Hey, you know what? Let's fast from intimacy for a short time, and let's devote ourselves to prayer. So it's you agree You do it for a short time, and then look what it says. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of of your lack of self-control. Three conditions. The The normal operation for a marriage is regular sexual intimacy. 
Now watch. That means the wife loses her body. That means the husband loses his. They give themselves, this is God's plan, not mine. God's plan. Except for when they mutually agree. Not one degree, not one says, hey, listen, I'm cutting you off. That's called selfishness. That's called power. So one person that can't, you mutually agree. And you do it for a short time and for the purpose of prayer. And you come back together again quickly. Friends, back to Song of Solomon. That's selflessness. So we see what happens in here. They get selfish. Selfish. Watch what this guy does. This guy's going to put on a clinic now on what we should do when we come knocking at the door of our lover, our married lover, and you know what? It's not going to happen that night. Watch. She says, verse 5, verse 4, my lover thrust his hand through the latch opening. (gasps) Here he comes. He's breaking in. No. He didn't bust down the doors. He put his hands through the latch, and he starts to fumble with the latch like he's going to unlock the door. I'm coming anyway. I'm coming after you. Watch. My heart began to pound. She says, because now she's getting, uh, she's kind of enthusiastic. Watch. I arose, verse 5, look at it. I arose to open for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh. Here's what he did. He is such a classy guy. Do you guys know what meekness is? Meekness, we, masculinity is all about meekness. And you know what it is? It's not about weakness. Because if you're, if you're a weak person, you're not a man. Masculinity is about meekness. Strength under control. Not unbounded strength that abuses people. Strength under control. That's what masculinity is. Real God masculinity. The man, watch, how, watch his meekness here. He sticks his hand through the lattice saying to her, I can get in here if I want to. But he takes some myrrh. Myrrh is this beautiful, you know, frankincense and myrrh. It's all throughout the Bible. It's all through the whole that song. In their dating life, they used myrrh. It's a beautiful, fragrant perfume. It's an important part of their relationship. He brought some with him to celebrate their whole relationship. And he has this myrrh, and he wipes it on the handles, and then he leaves. He leaves because the man is smart. The man is brilliant. He knows that. I can go in here and take care of business, but you know, what good is it going to do if her heart's not in it? Duh. He is brilliant. You know why he's not after her body? He's after her heart. Another sign of a real man. Another sign of a real man. He knows which battle to fight. And so you know what he does? He leaves his calling card, and that had to smell beautiful. She comes up. She touches it, and he realizes, she realizes, oh, my goodness, he had his hands in here, and he could have come in if he wanted to, but he didn't. Watch what happens. This is a classic fight. Now watch what happens. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. Verse 6, I looked for him but did not find him. I called him but did not answer. She is sad now. Watch. The watchmen of the city found me, and they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took, off, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the wall. She said, I feel so, I don't think, let me be honest with you. I think this is a poetic device. I do not believe that these watchmen are actually beating her. Let me tell you why. Could you beat the queen and live? So what's happening here when she says, they beat me up? I personally think she feels so bad about not getting up earlier. She's beating herself. I think she's beating herself with this, you know, this poor guy, all he wanted was a little time with me, and I was all about me. Big moment here. Listen to me now. In your marriages, listen to me. Do you believe 
God can work on your spouse. You, man or woman, make a horrible Holy Spirit. Right? But aren't we always trying to be the Holy Spirit to our spouse? Aren't we always trying to, oh, da 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 go, da da go, 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 right? We're always trying to be the, you're a horrible Holy Spirit. You know what I see in this passage? Something brilliant. They're having a fight. They're having a fight over something very intimate. This could go south so fast and be horrible in the relationship. And some of us know that from experience. He puts his hand in the door, leaves his calling card, that liquid myrrh, and leaves. He creates this room for God to go to work in her heart. And what does God do? God goes to work in her heart, and she begins to go, oh, I'm so silly. I should have never let that happen. Now watch. She calls on her friends. This is interesting, isn't it? She's out in the streets. She calls on her friends. She says, daughters of Jerusalem, those are her friends, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. In other words, paraphrase, if you see my man, send him home. I want to see him. I'm back in the game. I want, I want to work with him. I want to love him well. Now listen, fewer things, besides your relationship with God, fewer things will de- actually decide the quality of your marriage besides your friends. I want you to watch what these friends do. This friends is in verse 9. I can, oh, my glass. I should have brought my glass. Is that verse 9? How? Yeah, okay, good. Thank you. How is your beloved better than others? Now, remember, they're, they're just coming off this fight. And she's kind of sad that she, she's starting to regret that she didn't respond to his invitation. God was able to work in, in that person's life, in that gal's life, right? And so we don't even know where he's at. And they said, she says, friends, help me find my lover, please. It's urgent. My man, where is he? And her friends go, well, okay, but listen, how is your lover better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you, you are asking us to go look for him? Now, you know what? This is really important. You want to talk about how to keep romance in your marriage? You want to talk about how to keep intimacy in your marriage so that it doesn't die out over the years? You are going to have to choose your friends wisely. This is what the friends say. Let me paraphrase it for you. Hey, lady, um, why did you marry him anyway? What was so great about that guy that you actually married him anyway? I mean, why are you so excited to see this guy when you just got done fighting with him? Now, why is that a great question? I'll show you why. Watch what she says. (laughs) Oh, man, I love this passage. Every man in this room wants their wife to believe these next words about them. They want to believe their wife thinks this about them. Ladies, would you humor us, please? We're desperate. She says, my lover is radiant and ruddy. I'm not even sure what ruddy is, but I like it. Ruddy. Under, he said, outstanding among 10,000. you got to understand, my man is better than them all. That's what she says. His head, watch what she does. She starts at his head. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mouth, mounted with jewels. His cheeks are like the 
beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are like rods of gold set with chrysolite. His body is like a polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble and on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like that of Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. You know why she says that about him, guys? His mouth is sweetness because if you read the first five chapters, he just goes, I love you. You're beautiful. When can I get more time with you? Oh, I love you. I love you. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. No wonder she loves him. He feeds her with his mouth with all these great words. She says his mouth is so sweet. And that's not necessarily in taste. It's in, it's in what comes out of it, those words. He's altogether lovely. I love this part. Listen now. This is my lover. This is my friend. You guys, the next time somebody you know who's married, ladies, the next time some woman comes complaining about her husband to you, and it will happen. Church is where all this stuff happens. It's called women's Bible studies. Don't even tell me it's not. <laughs> Don't even tell me it's not. I know this. My, I said to my wife, I, when she goes to Bible studies, she goes to a couple Bible studies, but I remember when we were newly married, I said, how's it going to Bible study? And she said, you know what? I really enjoy it, but you know what? We spend about the first half hour complaining about our husbands. I said, those aren't our friends. No, I mean it. Those are not. Listen, we're newly married. I do not want my wife to think this is godly. You know what kind of friends I want her to have? Because trust me, I drive her crazy. I'm a man. Enough said. But listen, I want her friends to go when my wife starts going, oh, man, that turkey, you know, you don't understand who he is, da 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 And then I want them to go, why did you marry him anyway? And then I want her to think about all the things that she loved about me, and I want it to win her heart back to me. That's a friend. That's a friend. So the next time, ladies, listen to me, the next time somebody's complaining about their husbands, and they will, I want you to ask them, why did, why did you marry him anyway? Just ask that question. Why did you marry him anyway? Give me 10 reasons that you loved him. What's so great about it? Give me 10. And just shut up. Now, you may not have, they may not like that, but that's about being the best friend you could ever be to somebody in their marriage. You're going to need that kind of community. Guys, listen to me now. I'm just going to shoot straight with you, guys. When we get together, we talk about how much we're not getting. Don't act like you've never been in those conversations at church, guys, on the men's retreat. That silliness has to stop. If that's all it's about, then you're, then you're already missing something. It's about loving God and loving your wife. You get those two part. You get those right? The other stuff's going to follow. So instead of making fun of marriage, like everybody else in the culture is doing, we ought to do something different because we're Christian men. We ought to be saying to young men, you are going to love marriage. It's great. It's wonderful. And watch them brighten up because they're, they're full of hope, but they get it sucked out of guys because we've got a bad marriage. Instead of working on it, we whine. That's what boys do. Boys who shave, whine. 
And let me speak one more thing to the guys here before I move on. I'm heavy on the guys because you know why? Yeah, I think a woman can ruin a marriage. I've seen it. I've seen it. But if the man, listen now, if the man will love God and love his wife, almost always and eventually everything will be okay. Let me say that again. If the man will love God and love his wife, almost always and eventually. See, it's hard work. Most of us guys dig a great big hole and then we can't figure out why one set of roses doesn't get us out. We just can't figure it out. You dug the hole, grab the shovel, start putting the dirt back in, right? Eventually, everything will be okay, but you gotta be the man. Now, I want you to watch what happens. This is the responsibility in chapter 6. The friends say, wow, that's amazing. He's quite a guy. Where has your lover gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did he turn so we can go look for him? And then she goes, oh, I remember where he's at. My lover's down at a garden. I know that's where he's at. He's in the garden. She walks down to the garden, and let's pick it up at verse 4. The moment he sees her, she says this. He says this to her. You are beautiful, my darling, as Tirza, lovely as Jerusalem, majestic as troops' banners. He doesn't go, I knew you'd come looking for me. I knew you would need the man. I'm here. He goes, you are, and let me quote it, you are beautiful, lovely, and majestic. I love this man. He challenges me. So here's my challenge to you. Here's my challenge to you. Don't settle. Listen to me. Don't settle. Who's not married here? Raise your hand. Don't, don't settle for the culture's idea of marriage that someday you'll get married and then from that moment on, it goes down the toilet. It will if you think that. And it will if you don't work at it. I want to challenge you to embrace God's idea in the Song of Solomon that you know what? There are ups and downs. <laughs> Hello, right? But you know what? It can keep growing. And when you are grandma and grandma, grandpa, great-grandma, great-grandpa, you can be romantic and intimate. It doesn't have to die. It doesn't have to die. Secondly, here's my challenge. I challenge everybody in this room. For the next month, for the next 30 days, to read the Song of Solomon as much as you can over and over and over. It's going to take you that long just to get through the poetry. It just is. I'll give you a hint. Chapter 4, honeymoon. See if you can figure it out. Chapter 7, after they make up. See if you can figure it out. Study God's Word. I, my, my passion is to not teach you everything in here, but to get you to study it. You want a great marriage? Here it is. Those of you who are not married, chapters 1 through 3 talk about initial chemistry and courtship. The whole deal of falling in love. See what God has to say about that. Lastly, if you're going to really continue to build it, I, need, I, I got some resources for you. Can you, can you turn that? Um, can I have this right here? This little thing? On the outline I gave you, see the outline here? Turn it over. 
I have a, I have a little blog called Cup of Joe with Bill. And I, this morning, I just uh, went live with uh, a bunch of resources that you can download. One of them is a study guide that I've developed for reading the Song of Solomon. So I want you to go on, my, on a cup of Joe with Bill.com, and I want you to download my study guide. It's a PDF. There's some funny stuff in there, funny pictures, that kind of thing, because I think we need to laugh at ourselves. But it's a way to study the Song of Solomon so you can have a great marriage. And then I want you to listen to six messages. See the titles of the six messages here? Six messages, they're free. You can download them there. You can uh, listen to them there. You can listen to them live, whatever you want to do. But if you're going to have a great marriage, you're going to have to work at it. I'm going to give you the tools to work at it. Got it? If you don't have one of these, let me know. We'll get you a copy of it so you can start your Song of Solomon journey. I want to challenge you to do it. It's God's picture of a great marriage. Lastly, and most important, and then I'm going to close in prayer. Do we have a song afterwards? There is a song? All right, when I pray, you guys come on up, all right? Uh, But lastly, here's what I want to say. Some of the greatest ways that God has worked in my life from a totally dysfunctional family has been, uh, has been God has placed people in my life. My wife and I have sought out marriage mentors, people that are older than us, people that are wiser than us, people that have uh, had more troubles than us in some ways, and they've learned a lot along the way. And so what we've done is we've sought those people out and sit under them. This is the biggie, and I want to challenge you to do this. Yeah, I want you to read the Song of Solomon. I want you to read it together as a couple if you're married. I want you to try to, try to dig into it. I got some great resources for you there. But you need... Who are your friends? Who are your marriage coaches? And listen, if you've been married a long time, I want to encourage you. When you meet new, new young couples here, lean into them. We need, the, Titus says, the book of Titus says, older women should teach the younger women, older men should teach the younger men. That's how it works in the church. And so we're supposed to be this community of believers who help each other's marriages, Right? And so I want to encourage you, if you're, if, you're, if you're in a situation you're like, even if you're my age and you're going, I've been married 22 years, but I want to make my marriage better, get, get some people that are in their golden years who have a great marriage. Look for those people and then go up to them and go, could we sit and have coffee with you sometime and could we ask you pointed questions about marriage? And like questions like this, have you ever been so mad at your spouse you wanted to choke them? Why didn't you? How did you overcome that? These are questions I ask, right? My, my mentors, right? Um, my questions are, what do you do when your wife wants to choke you? That's my questions, right? Because she's great. Now watch this now. Um, those cycles, how do you come out of those cycles? See, your mentors will be able to, your mentors have been through those cycles. Ask them how they did it. Listen, the first place you ought to go if your mom or dad is here is to them. They have this wealth of information and experience. And they'll show you. Boy, I meet somebody married 30, 40 years, 50 years, 67 years. The other day I met somebody, 67 years of marriage. You know what I love? I don't miss it. I go, Come, I teach a young pup about marriage. How'd you do that? And you didn't even go to jail once. How did you do that? I want to know. That's what's going to be transforming in your life. An older couple to help you take the journey. Would you bow your heads and I'll close with prayer? Without anybody looking around, um, I'm not going to ask for any kind of response or anything, but uh, 